You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Norman Rockwell is probably best known for his wholesome and nostalgic illustrations that graced the covers of the Saturday Evening Post for decades. His name has become shorthand for an idealized version of America, but as we all know, in great art, there is always more than meets the eye. For this episode, we focused on how Norman Rockwell used his painting abilities to reflect the reality of America as it struggles to live up to its ideals. In this episode, we talked about the problem we all live with. This is a piece about the struggle surrounding race, integration, and equity. And regardless of race, gender, ability, religion, or other cultural identifiers, The struggle for equity is one we all live with, because injustice for anyone is a harm to everyone. Norman Rockwell believed that our ideal of all people being treated fairly was important enough that he felt compelled to use his platform and his talents to call attention to it. Candido and I had a great discussion of the work, but I do want to alert listeners that the painting includes an offensive word that we do not use. I hope you enjoy the episode, and I hope you take time to think about how you can help to make positive change, because even Norman Rockwell, the artist known for creating nostalgic, idealized images of America, recognized the need to learn from the past and acknowledge the truth of our present so we can work for a better future. I feel like who art ed? Who art is Mr. Wood art ed me? Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today, I have fellow art teacher and podcaster, the host of the Everyday Art Room, Candido Crespo. Thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I'm excited about this conversation. I'm excited you reach out to me, and I'm so glad we can connect. Yeah, I I am excited. You know, it's it's. Uh, as I was saying before, it's kind of like when I was recording with Tim Bogatz, it's a little bit of a surreal experience to start to meet people that I've been listening to for a while. Because you've been doing a lot of good work, not only on on that podcast, but 
um, with the anti-racist art teachers and all of all of the things that you're doing <laughs> right now. You make me feel like a lazy man. But <laughs> one of the awesome things is you brought an artist I was not expecting because I usually allow my I usually allow my guests the opportunity to say if there's a favorite artist they want to talk about. And you went to Norman Rockwell which I would have not pegged to be your favorite artist. Um, but then the more I'm reading about him, the more I'm like, yep, he was doing some good stuff. I did a, I did a mini episode right. about his um, Freedom from Want painting. It was a part okay. of his Four Freedoms series. Right. And, you know, I always had that picture of Norman Rockwell as the nostalgic Americana, you know, sort of the the whitewashed and glossed over... Um, images that we hold up, which is fine. You know, it, it resonates with a number of people. But the more research I was doing, the more I found like, yeah, there's more depth to there than I at first recognized. Yeah. Well, uh, first, let, let me let me hit that uh, that question or that that curiosity about why he's my favorite artist. So um, I'm an illustrator. I love illustration. And I mean, he's like he's he's our golden boy in illustration. He's the person that made illustration fine art and gave it and allowed us, allowed it to receive that recognition. And um, my interest in illustrations rooted in comic books. Are you a comic book guy? You know, I, I never got that much into comics other okay. than like the Simpsons comics. Like okay. I love, I love quality illustrations. And as a father, like I'm sure just like you read so many picture books and <laughs> when you see it done well, it is, it is fine art. In my opinion, I Absolutely. did an episode on Dan Santat earlier this year because like illustrators do amazing stuff. I agree. I agree. And, and so that's, you know, that's the ultimate reason why Norman Walkwell did it for me. And the second thing is just, um, I enjoy a good storyteller. I I just love people who have the ability to really share a story. And, you know, as an artist, somebody who could do it visually, well, that's just even more impressive to me. And so, yeah, he became my favorite artist. Uh, not immediately. It happened a little bit later. I think once I started to find my own, you know, who I was in the art world, uh, I, I sort of, you know, landed on him and said, okay, this is, this has been my guy all along. I didn't know, but, um, you know, now I, now, every time somebody asks me if I'm presenting or, you know, a child asks me, like, who's your favorite artist? I just say him and just without without any doubt. Yeah. And, you know, jumping off of what you said about how he is a visual storyteller, I think visual communications is such a big deal. And I think the story aspect is what really gets me invested in an artist, whether it's the story that they're telling in their art or their personal backstory. I always find story is how the art becomes meaningful to me. And that's why I always like to start off with a little bit of the artist's story in the context here. So as you, I'm sure, are probably well aware, Norman Rockwell was born in New York City. He was born February 3rd, 1894. And basically from the time he was a child, he just excelled in the arts. He's one of those people that often the history books would not compare him to Picasso, but I would in the sense that just from an early age, 
it seems like everybody knew like this kid's going places and he's going places in the arts. He took classes at the New York School of Art at age 14. When he was 16, he left high school and studied at the National Academy of Design and then went on to the Art Students League. So again, like for those who are not super well versed in like the art world and art education, I mean, those are some pretty prominent institutions. The Art Students League, lots of the greats came through that institution, George O'Keefe, among others. And so then he's basically finding success as a commercial artist or illustrator from the beginning. Like his first commission, he was designing Christmas cards. He was like 16 years old. And then he was hired as the art director for Boys Life magazine. Uh, that magazine's no longer around, I believe, but it was the official magazine of the Boy Scouts of America. He was just a teenager when they made him his, their art director. Like, that's bonkers to me. Well, uh, I was waiting for you to get to the, the point where, uh, you know, 16, he becomes professional. At 16, I, I certainly wasn't. I don't even, I hadn't even actually created a complete painting at that age. I, you know, like it just wasn't my thing. I would just draw in sketchbooks or fulfill whatever the requirements were for, for my class. But to think of like going pro at 16. No, yeah. I, I <laughs> at 16, I was doodling on the walls in my bedroom at night and probably terrifying my mother as she hears like the scratching sounds on the wall. But, um, like I hadn't taken an art class at that time. Like I was, I was, <laughs> I was going to go to med school. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> like I, I had a whole other, a whole other plan for my life. But, uh, yeah, the, the idea that like at 16, you're operating at that level. It's, it's impressive. You know, Absolutely. it's, it's that kind of prodigy type of thing. And I'm not talking like prodigy, the band from the 90s. I mean, you know, someone who's excelling from an early age. Um, <laughs> you're like the only other person who's going to get that reference. So thank you for that. I, I just, I was, I, I had to say this because a fire starter is, is, is a song that they use in <laughs> like a lot of the Peloton instructors. And so it just made me laugh and think about that. <laughs> I love that that's on Peloton now. Like, um, this, the song <laughs> Firestarter is now what uh, middle-aged people are, are using to get themselves through their workout. That's delightful. Makes me feel a little bit better about the fact that I'm still listening to Blink everywhere I go. Okay. Um, so at age 22, back to our actual topic for the show... He made his first cover for the Saturday Evening Post. And basically, like, that was his bread and butter throughout his career. He worked with them for almost 50 years. Um, he ultimately made 321 covers for the magazine. Now, as I alluded to before, Norman Rockwell is often associated with this sort of nostalgic view of America. And I would say he's often been dismissed, as as you had mentioned Illustrator, like you said, he brought that illustration to the fine art world. And I think for a lot of time, the fine art world looked down on him as just an illustrator. You know, that division between the fine art and illustration and commercial arts and applied arts, like that division has never sat well with me. I don't think it's going to come as a shock there. Right, right. I, I, actually, 
that's the reason I mentioned a comic book artist thing or, or comic books is because, you know, those illustrators, they have a hard time being recognized as fine artists as well because of the uh, like mass production of their work. Mm-hmm. So they can spend, you know, an infinite amount of hours trying to produce this one 20 page book. But because it's mass produced at the volume that it is, it's as, as if they don't they don't create um, an exclusive piece. But, you know, that's so unfortunate. Yeah, it it. It really is strange the divisions that people make where, you know, suddenly because it's mass produced, it seems less clever and original and like less work went into the production of it. Um, And that's a division that longtime listeners would know I have not really supported. I on this show, I cover Leonardo da Vinci. I cover OK Go. I will cover any artist and celebrate creativity in all its forms. And Norman Rockwell a lot of times did not get his due in terms of the respect, but he was very popular as an artist because his work was shown out there in the Saturday Evening Post. As I as I said before in my fun fact episode from like six months ago, when we talked about the four freedoms, his freedom from want, it was like a collectible immediately. They they made like two and a half million posters of that mm. series. And to me, the greatest sign of success for an, for an artist is that their work resonates with people. And while his work has this sort of idealized image of America and its values, in a lot of ways, it... When I was younger, it seemed too just syrupy to me. I mean, it was just sweet and wholesome as could be, at least in some of his works. And it made it easy for a lot of people to dismiss because it was representing just sort of like one viewpoint of America. But I think what a lot of people look at Norman Rockwell, they dismiss his sort of patriotic flair as like the way that... As a child, I idealized my parents and I did not recognize any of their flaws. You know, I literally thought my dad was Superman for years when I was a child. But really, when I look more carefully at Norman Rockwell's body of work, I see that he was a man who deeply loved his country, but he loved it like a mature adult with eyes open seeing the good, but also pushing the country to do better and live up to its promise. And that's, I think, the story of this piece. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. 
I want to segue now to to the piece that you picked out. Um, we're going to be talking today about the problem we all live with from 1964. Yeah, I always like to try to let the guest go first on this because. I don't want to give you homework and make you do the background story about Norman Rockwell. So I try to do the heavy lifting on the first segment. But when you're looking at this piece, what's jumping out at you? What are you noticing? Yeah, um, If I may, there is um, I think it's important for listeners to understand that uh, that balance that was eventually created through his body of work of him, him um creating that utopia version of America and then finally addressing things didn't happen until he ended his relationship with uh, Saturday evening post. Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, prior to um, that, that while he was uh, create, he didn't want to disturb uh, America. He didn't want to paint that, that vision that he had of New York while he lived in New York. Um, he, his second wife actually was a poet and she uh, was a lot more liberal than he was and known for it. And she eventually had him, uh, you know, start thinking about these truths that exist in America that he was not addressing. And that because he has such a platform, she, she like, not, I don't know if it was convinced, but she basically told him like, Hey, if you have opinions, you should start showing them because you have this platform now. And so this piece was important, uh, the, the problem we all live with for, for just that, uh, because it's it was an honest truth. It was as a depiction of something that we were experiencing. Um, this piece, a commemoration for, uh, you know, for for Brown versus Ed. And, uh, you know, it, it it shows the story of Ruby Bridges um, and her experience in integrating a school in New Orleans. My my feelings about this piece is really just it's just so powerful seeing this young black girl uh, surrounded by, you know, these these men, but they're not nearly as significant as she is. You know, she's the focal point. Um, Everything about her seems like she's the determined young lady, which, you know, she had to have been considering the circumstances in that moment. The world was essentially against her, you know, and 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 her success in that moment was unpredictable at best, you know, and. And um, for people who are unfamiliar with the piece, you know, there's there's some there's a choice choice word that's behind her. You know, the N word is, is is very clear there, along with a splattered tomato and um, KKK on the opposite side of one of the U.S. Marshals. And she's in between these U.S. Marshals, U.S. Marshals acting like a frame for her. And um, whenever I see this piece, I just feel like. I feel like it's that it's the element of U.S. history that that has so much definition to it. It's not only like unfortunate circumstances, it's also looking at like, you know, how this young lady helped change the course of, of the United States and, and start making history. Um, so I, I kind of, I, I feel like two ways when I, when I look at this, I'm, I'm like, oh, I can't believe we had to do this. And also I'm so glad that she was able to do this. Yeah. And you know, to get into a little bit of just the background to understand this piece, because as you described, we see we see her walking to school and she's it's framed by the uh, U.S. Marshals who are escorting her because this was the age of um, court mandated integration of the schools, uh, the civil rights movement in America the the fight for equality has been a long struggle. I mean, 
basically as long as the country has been around, we have been dealing with these issues. Obviously, the nation was built on the labor of enslaved people and land taken from the indigenous people. And a lot was sort of rationalized, saying that some races were lesser in some ways, uh, you know, animalistic, unintelligent, or whatever derogatory things were going to be said. And really, the Civil War was one of our country's reckonings. The 14th Amendment put an end to slavery. And in the Jim Crow era, schools were segregated. There was a U.S. Supreme Court notion about separate but equal. And then, as you have alluded to already, saying Brown versus the Board of Education, um, that's sort of shorthand for the court case where the Supreme Court said separate but equal is inherently unequal. And that is where in the 1960s, you know, the civil rights movement was, well, I guess Brown v. Board was a little bit before that, but um, we're this was painted in the 1960s in reference to that integration of the schools and the social upheaval because for those for those first people who were going to schools that had previously been white only that was not only like an awkward experience that was a dangerous experience people, like it it got physical it got violent and norman rockwell Norman Rockwell is showing us, as we said, the problem we all live with. And I think what's really interesting here is that is a dark history. That is a very problematic history. And from a distance, we see a little girl in a white dress walking to school. We see her on the street. And what I, what I like about his portrayal of her is she seems bold and confident. She's, she's not like hanging in the back of the frame, she seems like she's charging forward, right? Like the U.S. Marshals are like barely keeping ahead of her. Right. <laughs> and and I think it's also important, his framing of the shot, like she's the only one who has a face there. The U.S. Marshals are sort of just anonymous figures who are there to protect her. But I think that, was probably a good strategy to make sure that we keep focus on who's really being elevated here. It's not, you know, and not to diminish the courage and the strength that it took to be the marshal who's escorting them, but it shouldn't be about those men because, you know, she was the courageous child and she's the one who, who is being upheld there. And I, I think he, rightly cropped it to keep the focus just on her if we if we may um so she's she ruby bridges is just one out of four young ladies who who had who were responsible for this i mean i say responsible because it's a burden that was put on them um and i i want to just talk about her for a moment because uh, you know she is equally as important to the story as uh, because you know it was based on on an actual person but she told her story um, in a in a documentary I saw about uh, about Norman Rockwell. But she's telling her story that she, uh, you know, she, when she got into the school, she actually didn't she actually didn't um, go to a class that first day. But she tells her experience of being of walking to school 
And at that time, the entire city was aware that integration was going to happen, but they didn't know what schools it was going to take place in. And so parents would drop off their kids and then wait outside to see if who, if, you know, who was going to come to the school that day. And on her day, you know, those parents ran back inside the school, pulled their students out because they really weren't in favor of integration. And then the second day where she actually started to attend classes, you know, teachers were teachers were quitting their job because they didn't want anything to do with integration as well. And um, she never got a chance to meet Norman Rockwell. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she says she uh, that she commends his initiative and his bravery for the uh, for, you know, deciding to take on this piece and 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 uh, commemorating the experience, you know, through visual arts. I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, because, you know, as as we've said, I mean, Norman Rockwell, iconic for his his beautiful pictures and illustrations that I think everybody can get behind. Everybody can get behind, like, the four freedoms and the, the idea of freedom from want and freedom of speech and those ideals that we have in, here in America that we that we've held up for so long and here he's laying it out for us the problems and the struggle but i think i think what i really like about this piece is that while he doesn't shy away from the problems and the struggle and the ugliness of what what all of that meant and still means for some people. It doesn't feel hopeless. It doesn't feel bleak. We're, we're seeing the ugliness, but that's not the first thing that I see. And it's not the last thing that I see because I see her strength. She is a shining beacon of strength, high contrast popping out. The first thing my eye goes to and I, I see other people, allies standing with her, you know, um, the graffiti on the wall is it's ugly. There's there's no way around that. It's it's a hateful and hurtful word that I will not be using for very obvious reasons. But. But that doesn't hold all of the visual weight. It's no. a detail that's present, but she holds the weight. Yeah, and I think I think it's just important to have it there as part of the narrative as well, right? Because if he's here depicting this honest truth, I think having that having that word there is uh is just part of the story. Yeah, and you know, it's it's contrast. You need those contrasts. You can't understand the light without the darkness. You can't understand that she is strong unless you know what she's being strong and brave in the face of. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to speak on the, uh, about how she looks like powerful. And as far as like direction goes, you know, she looks like undeterred. Like she, we know that outside, well, now that, you know, we've completely told the story, we know that on the opposite side of that, you know, of that painting, there is people that are just like staring at her and, and throwing the tomatoes and probably using yeah. the same words that we're seeing on the wall. And, um, and she's still going though, you know, she's still, she looks like she's completely in motion. And, um, I I think a technical thing that I thought was kind of funny is that, um, she, so the composition, she, it's like left heavy, uh, because Mm -hmm. she is, because it was printed in a, in a double page and a, in a two page, uh, like spread. Yeah. And a spread, sorry. 
it had to be that she that uh, Norman Rockwell avoided that that centerfold, right? So that she was uh, she wasn't split by the magazine. Yeah, because that center crease, um, right. which is referred to as the gutter, yes, in, in printing, um, that's right about where that ugly word would be. And I think I think there's something um, sort of poetic about that. Sure. Um, but also, when you talk about the composition, uh, the you know the the art nerd in me starts thinking about like okay compositional guidelines and it is left heavy right mm-hmm. um she is breaking a rule of sorts because she is the focal point and she is looking out of frame right we're seeing um a lot of empty space or negative space behind her which generally speaking you're taught not to do but i think this is really important because as you said as an illustrator he talks about symbol and story and as I said, I look at this with a little bit of optimism and hope for the future because she is the young child and she is the future. And quite literally, the ugliness is behind her. Mm. You know, she's moving past that very in a very literal sense in the composition. And I think that's that's an important thing to note there. Um I'm not going to stand here and pretend that like, oh, all of the problems of, of America were solved in 1964 or anything like that. No, but, absolutely not. But, um, but I do, I do like this idea that the younger generation is showing strength to move past ugliness and it gives me hope that we're making progress. We're moving in the right direction. Hopefully. Yeah, I'm going I'm to agree with that as well. Um, but the, the, my, I always have a little bit of problem with that because I think what it does is it like relieves us of responsibility. And by, you know, by saying something about, you know, about the younger generation, we still, you know, I'm not saying you, but anybody who's listening, you know, understand that we still have an obligation to provide them with all the tools needed so that they can find themselves to be successful. And um, yeah, but yes. Yes. Our current generation, all generations have an obligation to do good and to do better and to strive for improvement. I think that is 100% true. Um, and I, I would fully share that stance. And I apologize if I misstated anything that gave an impression that I, you know, think of these things as issues of the past because part of the reason that I'm talking to you about it today is because I think it's sadly still relevant. Yeah. I think that's probably why this is one of my favorite pieces because um, it just feels timeless. Unfortunately. I mean, it, like you look at the piece and you're just like, Hmm. Um, is this Mississippi now? Like you, you start to ask yourself, like, you know, could this be also like, if we just change the date, remove the artist and didn't tell anybody, somebody who was completely unfamiliar with this piece, you put the piece up and you said, and you asked somebody, Hey, what year is this? You know, where would the conversation go? Yeah. And I think that's because, um, I think that's because the way that he's telling the story, it's, you know, I always think of, um, What's that device? Synecdoche, where you use parts to represent the whole. Mm. We're not seeing the entire civil rights movement laid out here. We're seeing the lived experience of one 
one child going to school right. and who has obviously in extraordinary circumstances with this historical child. But I think we all know that there are people around who are experiencing similar, maybe not in the exact same manner, but similar hateful words or dismissive attitudes or, you know, all sorts of different problems. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so the, the broader feeling that it taps into stays relevant, even if some of the details and circumstances change throughout time. Right. Right. And uh, we can, you know, we can really just acknowledge this piece also. In addition to all that, I mean, really, it's a, it, it really is a celebration of, of, of this young lady, you know, and, and now that, you know, Ruby Bridges and, and her importance to United States history. It's really, to me, I think we can comfortably just look at the piece and just, and celebrate it as like a masterpiece between an artist that, well, in this case, I'm in my biased opinion, uh, um, done by a master about the story that was, you know, that was honest American history. Yeah. And I, I think, like I said, what I really like about Rockwell as I was looking at this piece and and some of his work is that he he showed that spirit of celebrating some steps forward and some of the good that he sees in in the country and his love of that country while also challenging us as viewers to live up to our ideals and to recognize that we're not there yet. We're hopefully on that, that path, but you know, it's a celebration of the milestones that we're reaching, even if we're not at the end goal yet. A work in, a work in progress, a work in progress. A work in progress means improvement and mm-hmm. you know, better is good. <laughs> I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the Louvre? British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's the a poop Louvre. joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> so I'm aware of this segment, and it's, it just makes me laugh because, you know, I already... I think I've already given it away that um, this is one of my favorite artists. So I don't know that I don't even know if, if like if there was a, an option here. Um, but this, to me, this piece uh, should be in the Louvre um, because I just feel like there is beautiful works of art, and then there is like truly important works of art. And um, for me, uh, this is this is a piece that just allows you to study technique, it allows you to uh, study painting and, and, and that medium, uh, it allows you to study history and it really gives you an incredible amount of, of substance to talk about and content uh, while also just looking like visually beautiful. Yeah, I, uh, you know, can you imagine if I tried to say like, oh, <laughs> this is this is one for the Lou, this is flushable, like, um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. This is, I think this is his finest work that I've seen. And this is, in my mind, absolutely a museum piece. Because as you said, it, it's, it's beautifully, it's beautifully rendered, even for an uncomfortable and, and painful topic. It's, it's a thing of beauty. And I, I, 
I think there's a lot for us to learn from, you know, stylistically materials. Like if I'm a structuralist approach, if I'm looking at it conceptually, like it's just, it's ticking all the boxes for me. Thank you for not putting it in a loop. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a monster. I I was hoping that you wouldn't pull the devil's advocate on me. I was like, oh no, don't do that. (laughs) I, I, I normally try to be as as argumentative as I can and contrarian where I can, but like, <laughs> I I I I can't get myself into that headspace of saying that there's something wrong with Ruby Bridges, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> I appreciate. That. Uh, um, so I guess I just want to wrap it up and say thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. Thank you for having me, Carl. Um, you know, I appreciate I appreciate you reaching out. I appreciate having this conversation. And this is, uh, you know, talking about one of my favorite artists and talking about one of the most profound pieces is uh, is really a pleasure for me. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, and just um, because I always want to make sure that I'm shilling for my guests appropriately, I got to say once again, Candido Crespo host of the Art of Education University's Everyday Art Room podcast. Absolutely wonderful resource for any art teacher to be listening to. I have gotten a lot from it myself, and thank you very much for taking the time. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.